Our text this morning is going to be in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. If you would stand again with me and as we read God's word together, let us hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 from last week. And we're going to read down through, chapter, uh, through verse 9 together to kind of conclude the text we're going to study this morning. Let us hear the word of the Lord together. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in today's text, verse 6, in this you rejoice. So now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice in joy with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thanks be to God indeed. Why do we suffer? What's the purpose of suffering? Have you ever thought about that question? Have you wrestled with it lately? Have you looked at the world you live in? Have you looked at your own circumstances and asked, is this really necessary, God? Is it, is it necessary for your people to experience difficulties and trials? Is, is, this, is this really needed? Maybe you've thought about that lately. Maybe you've looked at your own circumstances, or maybe you've looked at the circumstances of other brothers and sisters, or maybe you've just looked at the fact of being in the church in this crazy, ridiculous world, and you go, really? Is this what we have to expect, Jesus, until you return? And our world tries to answer the question of what suffering is, and of course, those outside the church primarily are those who have um, perhaps abandoned biblical truths, deduced that there really isn't any need um, for suffering, and it should be eradicated in every form, and we would say to some degree, of course, uh, that is a hearty amen. We want to see suffering eradicated. We also know suffering is re- rooted in sin, um, and therefore there's no benefit to the human experience. And so when they think about the fact that suffering is so alien, or at least we feel like it's so alien to us, better minds than me will then deduce, well, then there must be a reason for suffering. And then they'll, they'll pontificate theologically like they did in my um, philosophy class in college at Carson Newman. If this, there is this reality of suffering, that means one of, the three thi- one of the three things must be true. Either God is not good and loving, right? You may have heard this line of reasoning before. Two, God is not really present with us, so he's some other being. He's kind of out there, and he's not really with us. Or three, God is not potent. He's not powerful enough. He's not sovereign enough to do anything about it. Have you ever heard that line of reasoning when it comes to suffering? You probably have. You've been in any philosophy course. You probably have heard someone say something like that. I heard it and wrestled with it in college, and, um, and these theories, though I wonder if they're set against the Scriptures, hold any weight. I'm going to argue this morning, especially at least from the text we're doing, I'm sure we can look at lots of other texts this morning, that that's not true. 
You don't have to make a choice between God's goodness and love. You don't have to make a choice between God's presence and with us. And you don't have to make a choice between God's sovereign good power in the midst of suffering. You don't have to do that. The Bible doesn't allow us to do that. It doesn't speak in that way, and we should not either. So the main idea this morning that I want to just really just set our hearts to this morning is this, that Christian pilgrims, that's what we are, right? We keep saying it, Christian pilgrims endure suffering and trial with love, with faith, with joy because of the hope of salvation, or our future salvation. See, you and I don't have to answer the why of suffering. We must meet the who behind the suffering. And when we meet the who behind the suffering, it doesn't matter why the suffering, because we know the who who's going to get us through the suffering. That's really what I want us to see this morning. I think that's exactly what Peter would have us to think about this morning. Now, let's go back a little bit. If you weren't here last Sunday, let me bring you up to speed on a little kind of contextual issue that we're trying to knead out in these weeks, in the first few weeks of, of 1 Peter. We talked about the fact that in Peter's like first few verses, chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, verse 10, there's kind of like this gospel sandwich he wants us to really enjoy, this gospel delicacy. And so he then builds up these layers, right? So we got the bottom layer, which we're in right now, last week, this week, and next week, which is kind of the foundation, all right, this gospel worship that, that, that Peter's involved in, and he's trying to encourage the church to get involved in and to think about why we love God and why we love and our affection towards Jesus. Then there's that middle part where he calls us to say, look, there's an obedience and holiness that then flows out of the believer's life, not because of things that they do, but because of the response to the, the goodness of the gospel that flows through them. Then, 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 then the top of the sandwich, the gourmet, whatever you want to call that, right, that artisan bread there is on top of it is the, what we see, right, when we walk up to this nice dish. And that dish that the church world should see is the love and goodness of the church. All right, that's what we want to see. So we're still in this bottom part of the, of the sandwich. And the bottom part of the sandwich is integral, as I said last week, because if we do not like have a good, sure foundation, the whole sandwich falls apart. Amen? We all know this. We've had an, an, a really bad sandwich in that way. It may have tasted really good, but it was a really big mess to try to eat, right? You, know, you end up putting it in a bowl and having a fork, and no one wants to eat a sandwich with a fork, right? I mean, that's just wrong on so many levels. Well, today, we're in the second part of this foundation. And it's dealing with the question of suffering and more specifically, the inexpressible joy that comes to the, for Christians have in Jesus in the midst of suffering. And, and that seems, on the face of it, like an oxymoron, uh, something that doesn't, the two don't fit, right? Like you can have joy, inexpressible, as a Christian waiting on Jesus in the context of suffering? And the answer is, of course you can. But it's a lot of work. It's hard. And so what I want to see this morning is four things from our text. One, the Christian's joy in the face of suffering. Two, we will look at the Christian's perseverance through suffering. Three, we will look, we will look at the uh, Christian's present state during suffering. Like, what is it that defines the Christian? And last, we look at the Christian's future state after suffering. We'll see, hopefully, all of these this morning in this text. Let's talk about that first one, the Christian's joy in the face of suffering. And we see this in verse 6. It says here, 
in this you rejoice. What's the in this? The in this is everything he's led up to, verses 3 through 5. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So let's, let's just kind of break the verse down and think about what's being said here. In this you rejoice. You, you, you can rejoice right now in the realities of this big word here, eschatological salvation, right? This huge picture of salvation that God is unfolding all around us, that he's been working on since time began. And it is, you are encompassed in that. You are a part of that, that you have been saved through the person and work of Jesus and that you will be saved fully when he returns. Like there's this already but not yet reality. And we call the eschatological vision of salvation, right? That is the object. That is the object, my brothers and sisters, of our joy. Before we even get into the trial, before we even get into the suffering of this, we must understand that the, that, that the Christian goes into suffering differently than everybody else on the face of the planet. We go into it with a different object. Just look at what we talked about last week in verse 3 through 5, right? That the Christian is part of a people who are being guarded for a salvation yet to be revealed. And that our salvation, though, is, of course, a very present reality with us. Amen? But it's very much a future reality of things that are yet to be unfolded for us because Jesus is returning. And so there is a salvation for us that you and I know that the very present reality of our salvation and very much the future. And, and that's so important for you and I right now. Why? Because as you are now sojourning as pilgrims in a land that's not your home, you have a present uh, a joy in your salvation, but it's not enough just to be present, be there with the presence of, of realities of it. You must hold on to the future reality of it too, because there's a grand fulfillment you and I can't even begin to imagine that's coming our way. So there's that. This is what the Christian's joy is. And if we, if we bypass and go right into suffering and begin to answer all the questions about suffering with the wrong object... Of course we are going to get completely upturned by suffering. Why would we not? That's what everyone else does. And so they begin to describe what this suffering is. Now for a little while, you've been grieved by various trials. The word now, presently. You're presently. Like everyone in here, to some degree, some different levels of suffering than others, there is a reality of of suffering, trial, difficulty, whatever you want to, where you want to put on that, that is a present reality in, in the life of the believer. Every one of us came in here with something on our hearts, burdening us. I did this morning. In fact, I shared it with a couple of brothers this morning. I was tired. I had a headache this morning. I had some things weighing on my heart and soul this morning. It was tough. And I bet you did too. We don't have to minimize it. See, so many, so many folks, when, when you give advice to people who are in suffering and difficulty, if it is to try to push them beyond the difficulty and suffering instantly without actually acknowledging the reality of the suffering and of the difficulty, we're probably doing a disservice to people. Because what we're trying to do is make them feel comfortable in this home when they can't. They're not supposed to. Like the suffering exists in our life because we're not supposed to feel very much at home here. And when Christians are so short-sighted in the way in which we deal with present 
suffering, present realities in our lives, we're not helping each other hold on to the gospel. We're helping them just begin to try to hope, to, to put their hope on a unrealized reality that they want to see happen in their life. And that's not helpful to them. It's not helpful to me. It's not helpful to you. But even though these are very much real and present, they are nonetheless for a little while. They're, they're momentary. They, they come and go. And friends, we need to know that too. They're, they're momentary in the sense that this life is but a, a speck on the spectrum of eternity. And so this morning, I'm, I'm going to speak to everyone here. You, you are tempted this morning, most likely, to make decisions about your life based on present realities, and you are forsaking and you are forgetting about the eternity that lies ahead of you. You are. I, I have. And, and friends, can I just gently say, that is where the beginning of repentance and faith, be, that's where it begins for us is to, to, to acknowledge that we're, we're tempted to let present realities tempt us to think that that requires decisions on our present realities at the expense of eternity. Oh, friends, don't do that. Please don't do that. It says, you are now presently for a little while grieved, it says, by various trials. Again, just going right back to the idea, grief is real. It's not imaginary. Struggles in our jobs are, are not imaginary, and, and, and tensions we feel with the world over our value system and the world's value system is not imaginary. Marriage, trans, marriage uh, uh, struggles are not imaginary. Parenting children is not, and the difficulties that our children, our teenagers, and whatever face is not imaginary. They're, and we can be grief. Grief is real in the midst of this. And they're various, it says. Our trials come in various forms. And, and, and the temptation for many of us, and, and, and I speak to myself here, is to so exclusivize our experience of our trial to the point that no one else has the right to speak into it. You simply can't understand. And that, this whole therapeutic world we live in gives you permission to do that. And I'm just telling you right now, it's not real. One of the things a Christian gets to do together is the reality is that though your, your individual trial might be different and it may require very specific like, things to do to help with that, you are not suffering any differently than any other brother and sister in here. Maybe yours might be increased at different times. This is not to say that. like There are elevations of this, right? But we are people who now but momentarily suffer and are grieved and our trials are very much. But here's what we need to put our attention on. Look what it says. You rejoice now for a little while, if necessary. You've been grieved by various trials. What in the world does that mean? It means there is no... Um, God himself has a reason for your suffering. Our trials are not a product of fate or chance, as if God is held at bay by the infinitely indeterminate cause and effects of man's sordid decisions. 
That's what I'll see. The way the world will do when they, when they talk about suffering, they'll say, well, okay, we, 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 can't, tent, we can't by any means say that God's not loving. Um, and we can't say that God's not present with us. So therefore, what they deduce, God's not powerful. He's not sovereign. So he can't fix things. He can't be involved in things. And therefore, God is just this kind of puppet who has to respond to any infinite amount of decisions you and I make. And he has no idea what to do with that. So he's, he's, like, a, he's like a squirrel running around chasing his tail in his cage. That's the concept of God when you take God's sovereignty away, by the way. And so, friends, when we think about this, that's not what we see in court in Peter. If necessary, our trials, see, I, that, that, that our understanding of human freedom, where, whereby even God, the understanding that we're, I'm sorry, the understanding of human freedom whereby God is held a captive by our decisions is frankly untenable. You can't read the Bible and come away with that conclusion. It is utterly out of step with the scriptures. See, what that makes God is either he's a mannequin who's just indifferent to the plight of mankind, like the imaginary gods of the Greco-Roman folklore, or he's just capricious and therefore just unnecessary. When you take God and you strip God away from his love, his presence, and his sovereignty, you make God unnecessary. But rather what Peter is here signaling by this word, if necessary, is, is to help us understand that our trials, our difficulties, and our sufferings are held in the very sovereign, in the very good hands of our God in heaven. That not even the most difficult things you and I will face are outside of the scope and goodness of God's hand in our lives. They're not. And God's not, he's not a surprise. Oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. God's never, ever said that to himself or in the Holy Council of the, Holy, of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy. They've never said, oh, wow, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't calculate that particular scenario happening. No, he leads us into his suffering for purposes. Most of the time, it's to cultivate a deeper faith. Sometimes it is to reveal sin so that you'll repent. Amen. So you can put all this and we apply some of these things for the Christian in the midst of our suffering. Here's a few things that I, all ideas I've kind of already touched on, but I'll go ahead and just say them frank, pointedly. One, the Christian, pilgrim, Christian pilgrims understand that trials, that their trials are encompassed in the potent triumph of salvation. The powerful triumph of salvation. That means your trials are very much part of that. God uses our trials, uh, the trials of his people, to show forth the unfathomable power of his grace. He, 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 and it's tough for us. We, we cry, we weep, we grieve, right? But God uses it to show the world how wonderful and how powerful his grace is to change us, to take a sinner and bring him to life. Amen. This is our gospel. Also, though, the Christian pilgrim feasts in the midst of suffering on the riches of God's grace and peace, no matter how grievous and how severe their trial may be. If you are in a severe trial right now, may I just encourage you to feast on God's grace and his peace in your life. Because if you are not, of course you are going to make the wrong decision. You are. You are. God's grace casts fresh light on the grim state of our lives as we journey through to our true home. 
You, you can't deal with the grim state of your life without the fresh light of God's grace and peace in your life. The Christian pilgrim, thirdly, does not in all times and all places experience trial in the same way or in the same intensity, yet all of us will feel the tension between our temporary residency and our heavenly residency. Does that make sense? Like, you're, not all of us can, can completely identify with the intensity of one's grief over another one's grief. But all of us feel the tension of living in this world that's so incompatible with the residency in which we are now part of that we one day have when Jesus returns. And so it's on that merit that you can trust other brothers and sisters to walk with you, even though they may not know the particulars or understand the particulars of how you feel, because at the end of the day, this is what God's given the church to you for. I've heard it said many times, you don't know what suffering is. Have you ever heard someone say that before? You don't know what suffering is. Right? And, and so that, what that is, is kind of a one-upsmanship. Like, so, well, I, I hear what you're saying. That's not real suffering. This is real suffering, whatever that might be. Right? And there's a, there's, there's a, there's a kernel of truth in that. Like, like, I, like, we're not denying that there are those in the world who suffer way more than we do right here this morning. I, I don't know that any of us in here would say we suffer to the degree that maybe other believers in other contexts do, especially in closed countries and whatnot. Right? We know that. Um, Yet, it, is, it would be a huge misstep to dismiss the suffering of a Christian or a church on the grounds that there are those who experience more severe sufferings. And so I, I really, really hate when I hear people in our modern Western American evangelical world who say, stop saying you're, you're suffering, stop saying you're, you're persecuted, stop saying this, stop saying that. And, and it's just, that's just foolish. Yes, certainly we need to have some perspective. <laughs> I, I completely agree with that. Um, but, but, but also understand that God himself gives us mitigated the seasons of difficulty and suffering and trial, and it comes in various ways and forms. To, to, to live outside of our true home with Christ is to know and experience the misery of the world, though it is not, that is not to say that the misery is our disposition as Christians, because the Bible says we have joy in it. And that, that doesn't make any sense. And we actually have joy in it. It says, in this we rejoice. We rejoice with the right object in the midst of the suffering. We don't, we don't just endure suffering. We don't just simply hope that suffering, like we just have this hopeful optimism in suffering. But no, we can actually rejoice in it because we have the right object that supersedes the suffering that you and I face. And, and friends, we, when we read the New Testament specifically, or even the Bible specifically like all the way through, but the New Testament regularly envisions the path of suffering as the road in which a Christian must travel into the kingdom of God. Now make sure you hear me say something here. Your suffering isn't the means to the new kingdom. That's not it. It's Christ's suffering that's the means to your kingdom, the new kingdom. But the road in the kingdom into the kingdom is often suffering and trial and difficulty. So when you get up tomorrow morning and you're going, wow, another Monday morning. I have to do this all over again. I got to deal with him all over again. I got to deal with her all over again. I got to deal with those kids who want me to do endless amounts of things for me this weekend, this week. Uh, you know, whatever. You're, you're not alone. You have joy to hold on to. Second thing, though, we want to look at here is the Christian's perseverance through this suffering, though, because the Bible, and I think Peter gives us some uh, 
some, some very good instruction on, on the perseverance of the Christian. You know, because we, again, we, why does God let us suffer? Well, as a pastor, I, I have seen so many Christians suffer from illness and family and marriage breakdowns. And in some case, I write out suffering as one for one's faith. And, 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 and so it's, it's important that we, these are things that are real, like we've already noticed right here. But Peter gives us a glimpse of why God allows this suffering into our life, because there actually is a purpose. And he gives it to us in two, two installments here. First, he says there in verse 7, let's pick it up. Though you've been tested by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, and that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of in Jesus Christ. Two things we see there. The tested genuineness of your faith. God allows these things in our lives so that we would have our faith tested. He just does. We may not like that, but that's just, the, it just seems to be extremely clear here. Suffering is meant to test our faith. Suffering, is, suffering well as a Christian is a hallmark of true faith. This does not mean that Christians are not called are, are called to a poverty mindset or to suffering minded, be suffering minded in every situation. No one's going out there saying Christians need to go look for the most the hardest season of life that they can endure, and that's the most glorifying to God. That's certainly not true. You've probably heard pastors say similar things to that. That's that's not true at all. Um, but rather, suffering tests when it says the word genuine, the purity of it. When you put gold under heat, what are you doing? You're testing the purity of the gold, the trueness of the gold. God puts us under the heat of, 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 uh, of suffering and trial and difficulty. He's testing the purity of your faith. And friends, you and I know until Jesus comes, there's always kinds of mixed, mixed purities in our faith, right? I mean, like we struggle with this. This is not to cause us to question our faith, but rather to constantly be under examination of where our faith is and how healthy our faith is and how spiritually, and how, how spiritually healthy we are. We are to examine the purity of our faith. Peter compares this to the refinement of gold. Gold is this, again, as we said already, is this precious mineral, and the purity of gold is revealed through heat. And you and I must understand that's how God uses trials in our faith. But it's not just there. He says, so that, or so that it may result in the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does he mean by there? That means you and I, <laughs> we, we, are, we are earning a crown. We are, we are earning a, a, a praise and glory and honor at the revelation, that means the time when Jesus returns, there is going to be a, a, a look at our, like, what have we been? Now, let me, let me just make sure, again, we say something here. This is not crowns to earn our way into it. I, I always want to make sure very, very specific this, because people get this way wrong all the time. But there is a crown that we, we are seeking to earn with our lives, whether, it's, whether that crown is unto the obedience. I'm sorry, let me, let me back up here. I'm getting ahead of myself. Each person in the world is seeking to earn a crown. Like you're just born with that desire. That crown is either going to end with earning obedience to God as our sovereign king and creator or earning your own like, like, like reputation to earn your own status. 
But we don't earn crowns to, to, to grant, get God's grace. We are working out the crown because of God's grace so that that crown results in the praise and honor and glory of God through our lives, and therefore we are given this crown at the very end. Why? Because remember what God created humanity for in the first place in the garden. As his co-regents, as his image bearers, made in my image, go therefore and fill the earth and multiply and be there and be my regents, my stewards, my co-regents. And this is what the, the intention of mankind was in the garden, to give reasonable stewardship, to be a reasonable rule over the world. And the crown we wear will either be worn for God or for ourselves. And God says, you are now believers. You are made in my image by the work of my son, Jesus. You're now made new in him. And now you will then now working the crown out from the crown that I have given you so that you might be back where you're supposed to be in the end. Does that make sense? The Christian's life will earn him for him and her a praise, glory, and honor. When? When Jesus returns. There will be that moment. It's a picture of the second coming. So when we put all this together, again, let's just consider what this means for us. That one, deep faith is not exempt from the grim, perplexing aspects of our lives. In fact, it's very much part of it so that we are, it's, there's this idea in us that we want to meet people who, are, who, who think that we are supposed to be somehow or another separated from those things. And that real faith is, like, real faith is tested or proven by the, by, by the lack of suffering in your life. So that's a prosperity gospel mentality. So then your real faith, it, you, the reason why you suffer is because you don't have enough faith. You, you've heard this, right? No. No, no, no. You suffer so that your purity of your faith is revealed. Amen. This is what it's all about. Also, the Christian pilgrim must be aware that in the midst of that suffering, you and I are prone to hard and bitter thoughts about God. And the reason I point that out right here in this part of it is that when we're in the perseverance of, of trying to just to stay the course and we're faced with all these difficult realities, it's very easy for us to start getting angry and mad at God. Why did God allow this scenario? Why did my God allow me to, 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 to be in this, in this situation or in this relationship or in whatever it may be? And we can begin to think that somehow or another, we now know better than God. But the Christian with the right object... In these things we rejoice, i.e., that future salvation that we have in Christ, rests in the fact that you and I, we, 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 we can get in these situations and it's there for our good. It's there for the growing of our faith. That God creates character through the refining fires of trial. He just does. Our faith grows pure and strong through this difficulty. Genuine character emerges and is enhanced through trial and no other way. So if you're the kind of Christian who just tries to avoid the trial at all costs and you think that that because you want to look happy, happy, healthy, and wise, let me just tell you that's not what the Bible describes. It just doesn't describe it that way. The Bible describes our suffering as that refining fire that builds character and forms our faith. Third thing. Luckily, the last two are get shorter each time we get into the next point, right? The Christian's present state during our suffering. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. In other words, 
in the midst of the suffering and the joy and the perseverance of it, there's a, there's a present state, there's a present disposition that a Christian has in his or her life that you and I must take notice of. And there are three things listed here in this verse. First, the Christian is consumed with love. Though you have not seen him, you love him. So this, the things we're going to talk about here are the reality of, of genuine faith that is increasing in your life. This is the purity that is being revealed. You love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. This is one of the genuine faith elements that is revealed in a Christian's life. Everyone will see Jesus in the future, but at Peter's writing, none of the people he was writing to had seen Jesus. Yet, he talks about the fact that they love him. He's saying, that's a test that you're genuinely his. There's this indicative reality that exists within you that you love Jesus in spite of what you're facing. This is what he's saying. This is not Peter calling the church to love Jesus more. He's saying, no, 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 no. You are, you are really his. And one of the, and one of the um, evidences of genuine and pure faith is your love for God. Oh, it's a growing love. It's a love that's fickle at times. But if you are loving and you're seeing that love grow, that is an indication of genuine faith. Secondly, though, it is rooted in deep faith. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And what, what does it mean to believe on him? It means that faith is to trust, and to trust is to lean, and to lean on something that's give weight to it so that it holds you up. So there's a consumed with love, there's a rooted in deep faith, reality to pure faith. The same indicative reality exists in a, uh, for Christian love is also the same indicative reality of faith in a Christian's life, is that there's this progressive and growing reality of just leaning on Jesus. Right? Just leaning on Him. Trusting Him. This is what He wants the church that is scattered all over Asia Minor and anyone else who would read it from this time until Jesus' return to understand as they're experiencing the hardships that they face. And it's filled with inexpressible joy. Now, what's really interesting about this is this is joy that's actually connected to the original verb. In this, you rejoice. So the whole context of these three verses is joy, like the joy and suffering. And why is there joy and suffering? Because there's this genuine faith inside of you that's resting in the perfect object of your faith that is now manifested in love, growing love of God, and a manifest in, in, in deeper faith in God. And therefore, that is just inexpressible joy for you and I. You rejoice with joy, it says, with it, that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Their rejoicing then is inexpressible because they have a love and a faith that is unex, unexplainable to the human mind. And Peter says their love for Jesus and belief in him are not products of their own making, but products of one, what we saw in verse 1 and verse 2, their election via God's foreknowledge, their sanctification via the Spirit's love in verse 2, and that God is the first and the only cause of their salvation and the fruit that emerges from it. Amen. That's joy. That's joy. When, 
Look at, listen to me. When you, you know joy is when you realize something has happened to you that you yourself absolutely could not produce on your own, and no matter how hard you tried, but it was done for you anyway. That, tell me, that's the, think about the most joyful things in your life, and I guarantee it's because someone did something for you or something was done on your behalf, and it created joy in you because someone did it for you. You didn't do it for yourself. See, the problem with the world's idea of how we find joy in the world is that we have to somehow generate our own joy. And therefore, i got to go find it because I can't find it here. I can't find it in this church. I can't find it in this job. I can't find it in this parenting. I can't find it in this marriage. That, my friends, is false joy, and it will never be like, helpful to you. It will never actually give you anything. It won't do it. See, the Christian's present state is that we are people who are not dashed to the ground by the troubles of this life because we are immersed in a love that is greater than we can know. And we are grounded in a deep faith and we can lean and trust on Jesus who actually is the object of our faith and that therefore fills us with the glory of joy that you and I cannot even comprehend. And then last, if we're, if we're talking about the, the present state of believers, this is what, again, the fruits of your life are of genuine faith or the love, faith, and joy The future state that you and I will have to look forward to and we enjoy one day after the suffering has concluded, because there is a day when suffering will be end. end. I know that's hard for us to fathom, but there is a day when suffering and trial will end. We hope and we rejoice in, again, that eschatological hope of Jesus returning where our salvation is made full. See, we have a... I think sometimes Christians talk about salvation in a very truncated way. We think of Christianity as that thing where we pray to prayer and therefore the realities of salvation were made ours and that's really where it begins and ends. No, 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 no. No, your salvation is way more beautiful and grand than that. That your salvation was worked out from eternity past the perfect work and first of, of, of our God, Father, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and was realized in the personal work of Jesus. And that moment when you put, came to faith in Jesus was that present reality of your, save, your salvation. But friends, just, just think about it. There is way more to experience in your salvation than you can even begin to comprehend right now. That's the kind of idea that Peter wants us to understand. That your salvation is way more beautiful than you right now presently can, con- uh, can conceive of in your present circumstances. And that's what he says here at the very end. This is kind of back it up to verse 8 there. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not, you not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice in joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So then your present pilgrimage is obtaining an outcome of your faith. The, the, the testedness of your faith, the purity of your faith, that is, that is graded, if you will, by growing love, growing faith, and growing joy in the person and work of Jesus, that is, that is obtaining for you a salvation for your souls. Let's just talk about that first, the outcome, right? Obtaining is this present, active participle. Sorry to go Greek nerd on you for a second there. But it means is that it shows us that the work that is going on in our life is both a present reality and an ongoing reality of our faith that relates to the future outcome of our faith. That make sense? 
So in other words, the things you're doing right now are not just for now. They are for part of what's coming to you in the end. That's to kind of get the grasp of this from a, from a, a, a linguistic standpoint. So that means the present realities of the love and faith in your life that are being generated by the person and work of Jesus and your love and, and, and trust in his gospel it is contributing to the joy you're going to receive when you meet Jesus again. And when you meet Jesus for the first time, really, personally speaking, face to face. But it says for the salvation of your souls. Now, when it says salvation of your souls, we're inclined to think of the word souls as some kind of like uh, uh, disembodied spirit kind of reality. But really, if you look throughout the Old Testament, through the New Testament, souls was just the comprehensiveness of the human. So it is body, mind, and soul, and spirit. So what he says here then, and I agree with Tom Schreiner, who was one of my professors in seminary, he says, the idea of souls here has in view the whole person and not the immaterial aspects of being spirit only. So there's a place, and you and I both know this, we get this, we can see this, right? There's a new heavens and new earth where the body will be resurrected, and there will be a body and soul, body and spirit. So let's just land a plane. Because at the end of the day, what this drives us all to in the midst of our sufferings is, is this, that the trials and troubles and the hardships of this world are mere temporary realities. They're real. They're grievous. But they're temporary. And because of that, number two, those trials that are, that are a product of Direct opposition to God's rule are merely temporary victories. So maybe you think, oh my gosh, the world's getting the upper hand. It's getting bad out there. It's a temporary victory. There's a difference between the battle and the war. We all know of every great war that's in human history. We know that both sides won different battles, but only one of them won the war. I got a newsflash for you. We all know who won the, wins the war. The war was won by our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so though there may be temporary victories and there may be temporary flags you know, put down on the ground in whatever context the Christian may find himself, those are mere temporary. So how, how many of the religious leaders who were opposed to Jesus thought upon his death that they had a decisive victory over Jesus? And then three days later, realized, oh, wait a minute. This ain't over with yet. Right? This, so don't fret over the, the, the temporary victories of this world. There's a triumph for the Christian over the failing and the fainting powers of this world that will be revealed when Jesus returns. Let me say that again. And this is land it right there and go to the Lord's Supper. There is a triumph for the Christian over the failing and fainting powers of the world that will be revealed when Jesus returns. Amen, church? Let's pray.